0: Brought to you by Penguin.
1: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaike and today I'm at the Hay Festival to talk to South African novelist and winner of the 2021 Booker Prize, Damon Galgett. The novel that won him that award, The Promise, is a family saga spanning four decades and has been described as an allegory for post-apartheid South Africa and the promise of white South Africans to black South Africans. It is, without question, an extraordinary novel and I'm so delighted that you could join us today, Damon. so good to see you. And as we are at Hay Festival, this is what? Interview number what? uh, Or did you stop counting after 112 or something?
0: Uh, Yeah, mathematics was never my strong (laughs) point. But even even if it was, I've long ago lost track, I'm afraid.
1: (laughs) Well, look, I'm really, really pleased that I can see you face to face and we can have this conversation. One of the things about this book is the ability you have to represent human beings in all their fallibilities and the nuances of them. And I wondered where do you think that comes from, your ability to see humans? Because we don't all see each other. We talk to each other, but you have this extraordinary gift to be able to do what you do.
0: Well I'm glad I've
1: given you that impression. <laughs> well you I, gave uh... the book a prize judges that opinion. Yes I did. And you've been nominated before for the booker, so you've been doing it for a while.
0: Well as a writer I guess I'm odd in the sense that I notice certain things that other writers might not, but I I also don't notice things that other writers would. So, you know, the the sorts of physical details that a lot of writers pay close attention to, the makes and colors of cars, for example, or the clothes that people wear, tend to be the sorts of details that pass me by. And yet they're vital, and they they do reveal things about human beings. But I guess I'm much more attentive to other ways that people reveal themselves and I I noticed a long time ago even in my childhood that people always seem to be telling you something that they're not even aware they want to tell you and if you pay attention to conversations in a particular way you might pick up what that something is. I don't know another way to put it but but very often just by certain phrases people use or the emphasis they place on certain incongruous words, maybe. There is a secret subject matter to most conversations that usually involves a revelation of some kind. So um, I guess it's that aspect of human behavior that intrigues me the most.
1: When I interviewed Douglas Stewart and I asked him a similar question, he said that it was because he became a carer to his alcoholic mother. And the roles were reversed where a child became a parent. And that gave him an insight. And I wondered if you could identify something that gave you that insight, because you said you listened to conversations in a particular way. Could you identify what that way would be?
0: Um, It's hard to put into words, really, but I mean, it's interesting that Douglas raises that as fundamental to his writing, because it involves a form of childhood trauma, I guess. And, Mm. uh, you know, I think a lot of writers have their writerly identity shaped in childhood, even early childhood, not necessarily under traumatic circumstances. But every writer, to some extent, I think feels like a spy. You've learned in some way to be an observer, and there's an element of secrecy involved with that. So when other people don't know that you're doing it, you're paying attention to scenes or interactions with an ear and an eye to what's actually going on. I think in my own case, you know, I had, I had a childhood trauma I've often spoken about which involved being ill with lymphoma for quite a few years when I was very young. And while I don't think that made me special in any way, it did give me the sensation of being set apart, uh, a little bit at odds with the normal current of childhood. And I remember being a very reticent child, a very quiet child, kept to myself a great deal. And if you're very quiet, people let you into the room without even knowing you're there, you know? So a lot of the time I was present in the corner and listening to adult conversations, things I wasn't meant to hear. So in that sense, I felt like a spy and an observer, I guess. So I guess aspects of human behavior began to fascinate me um, at an age when most children were, I don't know, playing
1: soccer or something. When you're a character like Salome, who we don't hear from, throughout the book how difficult is that to do when the job of a writer is to flesh out who people are does it take an extra effort to create someone that you don't want us to necessarily know
0: well I think the effort in that particular case was slightly different I mean it's very easy to ignore a character in a in a book but in a way that's negligent I mean if you don't pay proper attention to a figure like uh, Salome because you think she doesn't matter, that's not difficult. That's, that's in fact, something that a, a, a lot of writers may do without even thinking. What's far more difficult, and it was a difficulty for me in the writing of this book, is to let that character's silence matter. In other words, to draw attention on the reader's part to the fact that you're not illuminating the inner life of this character in the way that a novelist is expected to and yet to give you a sense of you know her presence maybe in a scene even if it's just as a menial worker in the background and what the silence might mean in relation to that activity so for me it was very important in this book not just to let her be silent because that would just be negligent but to let the silence lead towards a point and I would hope that point is made for most readers Mm -hmm. which is that a character like Salome in real life millions of them in South Africa, still has no actual voice of her own uh, in the society we've been shaping for nearly 30 years. So the silence is meaningful in a way that um, maybe silence in a different sort of story might not be.
1: I read much of this book in Cape Town, and when I went out in Cape Town and we went to dinner or we were in a shopping mall or whatever, I noticed the absence of a black middle class there and saw that black people were still serving white people. And it unsettled me.
0: There you are. Um, It has to be said Cape Town is uncharacteristic in that way. If you spend time up in Pretoria or Johannesburg, um, the situation is quite different. It's far more integrated, actually, racially. And something you hear in South Africa over and over is how racist Cape Town is. I don't see that in an active way on the streets, but I see it in exactly what you just pointed out again it's a, it's a kind of absence it is true that the black middle class in south africa has grown to the point where it's actually larger than the white middle class but that's not to say it's a you know a dominant or prevalent or even obvious because the middle class effectively in south africa is in a minority very much in a minority and you could say in a certain sense that's at the heart of south africa's troubles its failure to have grown a more prosperous Black middle class, by far the largest and angriest group in South Africa, is the, uh, the working class and the dispossessed. And I'm afraid, you know, 30 years into democracy, their numbers are still made up mostly of people of colour. And there we are. That's the crisis we're facing.
1: Is there an inevitability in writing fiction about South Africa that the micro will always be representative of the macro?
0: Well, isn't that true of most novels in a certain sense? I mean, you're looking for a a set of characters or a situation that stands in for something larger that that people can relate
1: to. Um, But that needn't be political.
0: It needn't be political. But that's a slight reframing of your question, to be fair. Does the political um, speak the truth of South Africa? Yes, at this point it does. I mean, I like to... Perhaps he used different terminology. I mean, I don't believe everything comes down to politics, but I do believe that none of us escape history. All of us are products of our time and place. It's just unfortunate that South Africa's recent history is so charged, it has such a political voltage, that the consequences of history are not as benign as they might be in a different society and a
1: different time. Because the promise is not just a promise made from one person to another, but also a promise of a South Africa that has not materialised.
0: Yeah, very much. But there is a level on which it is about a promise that was made
1: you yes, know, by one course. person to another and, was,
0: and that has failed to be kept. Um, and you could read it that way if you, if you chose to. I mean, in fact, the idea for that part of the story came from a friend who was very, very tormented by his own family dynamics because his mother on her deathbed when he was a teenager still, had extracted a promise from his family that they would do this very thing, that they would give a broken-down house on a useless piece of land to the black lady who had looked after her, his mother, on her deathbed. And the family all verbally allowed, agreed to this, and then found multiple ways to avoid following through on that. And in fact, it had caused a major family rift between my friend and his siblings and his parents, or his father, rather, which lasted until very recently when finally this promise was acted upon and the piece of land was signed over. And that's both an individual story and a story representative of the larger South Africa. I mean, land is at the heart of the South African issue. So in a certain sense, that scenario is playing out all over the country right now. So, yeah, you you can take that story and play it out as an individual family drama, but you can also understand it as a drama that speaks for the nation, unfortunately.
1: So, interestingly, from the real-life example... Said that the family themselves made as many excuses as they could to not carry through with this promise. But Anton in the book says that it's not possible to go through with this promise. This isn't a case of we're vindictively stopping this from happening. It was never going to happen.
0: Yeah, that's a detail I put in myself actually. Um, The thing about apartheid was it was very obsessed with spatial control, which you might have seen on your visit to South Africa. I mean, every little town is divided into a white town and a township for, you know, people of colour who are there primarily, at least in the apartheid view, to serve the white part of town. So the white part of town will have broader streets and street lamps and, you know, the houses will be more expensive. The, The townships are often in a terrible state of disrepair and people often have to travel great distances from one area to the other and then go back at night. I mean, the injustice is spatially palpable if you want to put it that way and to this end people of color were moved en masse from areas where they've been living for years and years and years and dumped in other areas with almost nothing at their disposal to set themselves up and, and get themselves going forced removals happened on a large scale in south africa one one of the lasting wounds that south africa carries one of many in fact But it was not the case that every area of South Africa could not be occupied by black people. That was usually done by decree. And I don't know for sure that this particular area outside Pretoria, where I've set my story, was such a, a place. But I added it to the story and wove it in as a particular South African detail that was certainly true in general, if it wasn't specifically true for this family. And it had a you know, a very particular resonance in the case of my story because I, I wanted I wanted more to have a realisation that what she thought was simple and straightforward was actually not. Um, and on the other hand, for Anton to be using the fact of this promise against his father in a way that was personally hurtful while also knowing that it was something the law would not make possible. So it's, uh, it's an example, I guess, of a particularly cruel... Apartheid regulation that found its way into a personal situation, which of course happened all over, over and over. And
1: One thing I also noticed when I was in Cape Town was the sense that if you give equality as a gift, then there's still a feeling that I've done you a favour, so somehow you owe me for the equality that I've given you. And in that is an inherent... Superiority still that I felt from people. So when they were not being polite to black people or nice to black people, it was as a favour almost. Um, you may be sensitive to you know uh, particular
0: undercurrents that that wouldn't strike most South Africans. I mean that's definitely true of of certain people. And a refrain you you used to hear from um, certain incredibly resentful. White people resentful about the transformation that had taken place was, go ask Mandela for that. You know, wh- whatever you might ask, w- whether it be for money or a job, go ask Mandela for that. In other words, we, you know, we've given you everything we're, we're going to give you, and the, and the rest is up to your people to sort out. So yeah, there's a there's a particular white South African harshness and unkindness in in that which you you may not hear anywhere else.
1: Um, but even when they think they're being kind yeah that's the thing it was this kind of charitable benevolence
0: well you know you're coming from a, um, a racist system that prioritized white people above all else and that taught white people to believe that they were innately superior So if you um, approach racial matters or or rather matters of equality from with that viewpoint, you probably believe that you're dispensing, you know, a favor to people. If I treat you equally, it's because I choose to do it. And here you are. I'm being gracious to you rather than the very simple truth that all of us are equal. We're all human beings. Uh, But that's a truth that uh, still eludes a lot of my brethren, I'm afraid.
1: How do you absolve yourself of that, that superiority?
0: Well, absolve? um, I don't know that any of us are uh, absolved of the past, to be honest, Um, especially not the past I come from. We find ways to try to do it. I mean, one, one of the questions that I've consciously tried to work with in the book is the quest of Amor, the youngest daughter in the family, who feels very ill at ease with her power and her privilege, but doesn't know what to do about that uneasiness. I mean, if you want to give up your race or your class, there's no way you can go and check those things in and get new ones, you know? So what do you do? You're you're born as a middle-class white person like me. That might make you terribly uncomfortable because of the position of power it puts you into. But how, how do you change that? I mean, a more solution, I think, in the book, is heartfelt and inadequate. She, she basically renounces her inheritance and sets herself apart from her family, and then works in multiple ways for her whole life, using herself up in the process uh, to try to repair some of the damage of the world. And and that damage isn't all due to apartheid. I mean, there's there's damage that comes about in multiple ways. So. I don't have an answer for you and uh, I suspect that you cannot be absolved of the place that history bestows on you. You can only choose to live out the role kindly or unkindly. You can renounce certain things and renouncing inheritance is certainly a significant thing to do. But you are ultimately still who you are and who the past has made you. So to whatever degree, the oppressors of the past will carry a lifelong guilt, I think, if they choose to
1: feel it. I remember interviewing a gay man once who said to me that... He said, don't expect me to be grateful that you gave me gay marriage. I should have had that anyway. It's certainly a viewpoint. But, you know, what's obviously... It was within the context of progress. And he I, said to I me,
0: understand, but what, the, the question that comes to my mind when I hear that is... The specificity of that you, because you are obviously not responsible. A no. system is responsible, no. and that's kind of true for for most injustice. I mean, of course, there are personal injustices, but that's not the sort of story I've told here. The injustice of a system is ultimately one that everyone's complicit in. Every everyone on the superior side of that system, whether you want to be or not, you're you're complicit. So, yeah, I suppose in that sense you could make a statement like that. But on the other hand, you didn't have that expectation of him, that he should be grateful to you. Yet I understand his feeling, you know. That's the thing about a system. It it can be broad and general and directed at a group, but there is a level on which, at the receiving end of that system, there are individuals and individual lives that are destroyed. and, And, you know, the
1: questions those lives might ask are not always easy to answer. Did it sadden you to write a book such as this, and it spans four decades, knowing that, that Salome still exists? This is not a historical look back at a South Africa that once existed. Or, Actually, it is in the early stages of it. But to end it knowing that this is a South Africa that still exists and Salomis still live amongst you. It saddens me, but it also angers me. Why has that situation
0: not transformed more? You know, because life has changed for quite a few black South Africans. They're not in the same position. Uh, It is possible in a, you know, if if you look just at the statute books to make your way, if you have the right resources and opportunities. A lot of people have become rich who were never rich before. So there is some upward migration class-wise. But the fact is that for millions and millions of South Africans, nothing has changed, and Salome is one such. She is probably not a highly educated person, probably from a rural background, and one of the impediments for her of changing the system is that she doesn't even understand how the system works. So in every way, everything is stacked against her. So, yeah, I mean, part of of my anger, part of the motivation for writing the book was... The feeling, the knowledge that, you know, the the silence and the lack of agency of somebody like Salome was true under apartheid, and it's equally true now.
1: Now, we have asked you to bring a few objects with you to talk about and that aid your creative process, or indeed just simply important to you. The first one isn't an object, although it is an object of your admiration. It's Bob Dylan. What does Bob Dylan mean to you, Damon?
0: Yeah, I chose Bob because he's my guy. I mean, (laughs) I I really... Is that a car sticker you have, Bob's my guy? (laughs) Well, it it may as well be tattooed on me somewhere. You know, I discovered music kind of late in life, and mostly I respond to jazz. Its rhythms resonate with, you know, my writing rhythms and and clearly with my personal rhythms in, in some way. But Bob, although, you know, he's used jazz or at least certain jazz resonances in some of his songs. For me, he's just a fiercely creative guy. I mean, he's almost uh, unstoppable. Since his very early years, he's just been pumping out songs. Not all of them great, but some of them definitely great. And I can listen to Bob endlessly. I love the the lyrics. I love the rawness of them. I love the feeling of stuff that's been created at a kind of white heat, I guess. So, yeah, Bob's my guy. And listening to him always makes me feel that I can sit down and not quite write a song, but write something.
1: Do you write with a musical accompaniment or do you have to have silence when you write?
0: No, I often do listen to music, but not music with lyrics. So I'm afraid Bob's, you know, not around for those occasions. Lyrics hook your brain and, and part of you is paying attention to them, whereas jazz again, and I, I listen to a lot of jazz in the writing of this book, and I, I think it shows.
1: Talking of different creative genres, music being one of them, but film was an interesting influence on the writing of this book. Can you tell me how writing a script influenced you? Quite revelatory, in fact, in how you yeah, wrote
0: it. Un- yeah, unusually, but Yes, I got offered the chance to do a couple of drafts of a film script, which which I needed to do from a financial point of view. I I do love cinema and um, creatively I thought it was an interesting challenge. But it was a gift in another sense because when I came back to writing my own book, I suddenly saw that the narrative voice that I'd been working with was quite staid and limited, and that if I approached it differently, with the logic of a film camera, that I could open up different avenues of narrative exploration that are not normally available. um, And certainly not ones that I would encourage other writers to pursue, because it's, it's, um, it's very hard to hold the attention of a reader if you're moving about quite as fast as I have. Which is not to say that, you know, I think I'm super good at it, I just think it's probably a way of thinking and a speed of thinking that are consonant with my own. You, you can't make something work if it isn't lined up with your own natural processes. So it was a kind of discovery about how my own mind works that I put to good use, although it made me very insecure during the writing.
1: How does that impact upon you looking at In A Strange Row or The Good Doctor now, stylistically?
0: Well, they came at a different time and from a a different source, I guess. Part of the point of The Good Doctor is that the unreliable narrator is extremely circumscribed by the limits of his own thinking, which doesn't make for a a free-flowing style, or for a point of view that jumps around like a grasshopper, which, you know, is what happens in this particular book. I tend to think each book has its own voice and that in many ways the most difficult part of the project is finding what that voice is. It takes me a long while, sometimes years. So your subject matter is one thing. How you convey that subject matter, the voice you find for it, is a different question entirely and quite a challenging one. Um, in the case of this book, I think the very rapid changes, the, the cutting from one point of view to another, the cutting from one tone to another, conjured up the sense of a chorus, which was very much in keeping with the South African nature of the book. You know, South Africa is a chorus, not, not a harmonious chorus, I might add, but it, but it is a chorus. And the frustration I was feeling in the early stages of the book had to do with the fact that I was not finding a way to let that chorus
1: sing. Um, so this style turned out to be the key. And is this style, I probably won't call it grasshopper style, it sounds like kung fu, um, but uh, this style, do you think this would be your style going forward now? I don't
0: know, it's a bit of an open question. It's going to remain an open question until I have the time to sit down and, and, and write another book. Perhaps not, because as I said, I think each book has its own voice, so really it's going to come down to whether the theme and subject matter of whatever grabs me next uh, will be best served by an approach like that. I'm not sure of the answer. Let's talk about the next object, the beach in Goa. Well, you know, it's not quite an object either. It's more like a state of mind. The beach in Goa just happened to be a a place that was extremely conducive to my own creativity. I wrote two books there, um, The Good Doctor and The Imposter. There was just something about... Being in a place where nobody knew me for one thing, where there was no telephone, where the water was warm, the beach was endless, the food was great and the people were friendly, it, it just felt like a place almost outside time, I mean there is no such place but it felt that way. And I used to rent a very very basic room with a desk in it and a bed and a chair and. Those are the tools you need, ultimately, to write a book, and you know they proved sufficient to the task. But it was a good place for me to work, um, and it will always hold that status in my mind. I think.
1: What do you need then in an environment for you to be able to write? Because of course you don't return to Goa every time you want to write a book.
0: Well, for a while I thought I might actually. I, I had this plan to sort of spend half the year there and half the year back home. I mean, you really need the instruments and. If you want to make a movie, you need quite a lot of equipment. To write a book, you don't. You need a notebook and you need a pen, and um, they're very portable things, so I used to take them along to Goa and sit and work. It really was the state of mind that Goa opened up for me, I think, that that made those books possible, and it's hard to really pin down why that state of mind would flower there, but it did. Everyone has a place, I think, that they respond to most... I don't even know what the word is, most... uh, openly and, and go uh, had that effect on me. Uh, it's been somewhat spoiled, I think, by a number of factors, uh, not least the influx of package tours from Russia and England. But I, um, for a while it felt like a sanctuary.
1: You mentioned pens there because your next object is stationary and is there a particular pen? Yes, there is, in fact. A Parker pen. That's right.
0: I was given a Parker pen, tortoiseshell Parker pen, when I was... 21 years old by a friend at drama school and I've been working with that pen ever since Um, and it's now sort of attained a a certain um, fetishistic power in my mind I mean I don't know what I'll do if that pen ever breaks and and once when I thought it had I was I was quite distressed so anyway long live Parker it's it's lasted a long time and I hope it's going to last a few more decades but um, there's a great pleasure in moving your hand over the page and watching the line that began in your brain shape itself in your wake. There's a physical pleasure in working in that way, which working on a screen just doesn't bring. There's a gap
1: between the thought and the execution. But stationary, no, nothing can beat it. Whose job is it to transfer the workings of the Parker pen onto the page?
0: Oh, I do that part too, but but that's the end of the process. I mean, the real work is, you know, the handwriting...
1: The outline or the entire book? No, the entire book.
0: I I write it first by hand at least twice, sometimes three times. And although that seems like a terrible labour, perhaps, actually, the work is very pleasurable. But it also... You know, I can type much faster than I can write. So... Working by hand gives me an extra few seconds to consider the word I'm setting down. And those few seconds might sound like nothing, but they really matter. And the rewriting matters too, because you're, you're weighing each word as you shape it on the page. And it may not be the right word, and you know, by the time you get to the second or the third draft, you've had time to consider that. And it
1: matters. Was it natural for you to become accustomed to committing to something in the first instance that you know would not be the best version of it. What do you mean by that? Well, I work in radio primarily. So when I speak, it is there, it happens, it's gone. The thing that I found hard when I started to write a book was going back, knowing that what I'm committing first is not going to be the best version of it.
0: No, I just think that's part of the process, you know. It doesn't come naturally in the sense that my temperament is quite tight and controlling i want it to be perfect first time round, but it isn't and i've had to accept that it's simply part of the process you you do try your best you write as if that's the final irredeemable version on the page but you you do it knowing that that is not the case, that you can return to it as many times as you need to. And there's great freedom in that, because it's incredibly intimidating to think that you cannot change what you're putting down there. It suddenly takes on an importance that's quite suffocating. Whereas if you know you have the freedom and the fluidity to return to it and tamper with it and tinker with it and move stuff around, well, that's the freedom to fail and to make mistakes, and the knowledge that you don't have to get it right, is absolutely vital. I mean, I'm always surprised by writers who don't rewrite, startled by it, in fact. They either have a genius that, that I don't, or an, a certainty that I certainly lack. But I really believe that most of the writing takes place in the rewriting. It's working from obscurity and unconscious impulses to a kind of clarity and control, hopefully, for your very last draft.
1: Um, how do you constantly try to veer as far outside of your comfort zone as possible when you're writing?
0: Well, as part of the freedom and abandon of the first draft, I try to let my unconscious mind speak as much as possible. To put it another way, I I think each book wants to be written in a certain way, and it's part of your job to find out how the book wants to be written. And sometimes, you know, they do feel significant. And then part of the process in later drafts is to try and figure out what your unconscious is telling you. I mean, this is an imperfect way of putting it, but that that is how the process feels. In the same way that a dream might tell you things about your conscious mind, you have to read the material that you're putting down in a first draft to see what it is that your conscious mind might make of this. So forgive the imprecision of this uh, expression, but that's that's the process I'm trying to follow. A wooden
1: desk, our next object.
0: Well, I guess it's a variation on uh, the stationary thing because, you know, computers are impersonal, generic, whereas stationary is very personal and not generic. But I get excited by the sight of a wooden desk. I have one at home, and that's the one I've been working on for years and years. I bought it at a store in a small town in South Africa. You know, there's a poem by Brecht about old objects, how he likes things that have been used. And I really respond to that. So there's a life in that table, you know, that was there before I came to it. It's, it's scuffed and it's scarred. It's got burn marks on it, which intrigue me. Uh, it was once painted green and then the green paint was scraped off, but there's still a few traces of that left. So the table has a, has a kind of, you know, a life and a personality of its own and I feel I'm adding to it by working on its surface and if ink spills on it so much the better. In some way, much like the table itself, I feel scuffed and scarred and, and a little burned. And these, these wounds and traces uh, tell the tale of a of a whole life, and the table and I have shared some of that life together. So, in itself, the table is conducive to um, producing more words. Do you hoard objects? A bit, but I've got better at purging, you know. Hoarding takes up enormous amounts of space. I often think hoarding comes from earlier years where you, you, you may be living under constrained circumstances. I mean, I, I know that... Part of the impulse for me is the thought that don't throw that away, you might be able to use it one day. And underneath that is, is, is the fear that you, you, know, you, you might not be able to afford to buy the thing that you'll need at a critical moment. So you should keep it somewhere in case you require it. So I guess as life's become more comfortable for me, that need has ebbed somewhat. But, no, I I try not to be a hoarder. And the the one thing I do hoard is books, and they take up a ridiculous amount of space. So I I wish I wasn't a hoarder in that respect,
1: too. How did an African grey parrot come into your life?
0: (laughs) I've had my African grey parrot, whose name is Caliban, since my late 20s. I don't know why I've sort of been... I've I've always been obsessed with birds. And I, I have to say that if I had known back then... What is often involved in the trade and trafficking of parrots, amongst other birds, I would, I would probably not have acquired him. But it gives me comfort to know that, you know, he actually has a beak defect, makes his beak grow skewly, uh, and that in the wild he would not have been able to feed himself and would have died long ago. So I feel in a certain way we were meant for each other. I'm somebody who talks his troubles aloud. So if I'm struggling with writing a scene... I talk to myself, I often berate myself. Why did you do it that way? Why couldn't you have done it a better way? It's much nicer to talk to a parrot because it answers back. So, in some ways, I think um, Caliban has taken on the role of I don't know, he's a split off part of my psyche that I can converse with about my troubles. And I I think sometimes the neighbors have heard me making my confessions, admonitions, and um, yeah, sometimes expressing my satisfactions too. But the secret of my relationship with Caliban is that he believes he's a human, and I secretly think so too.
1: <laughs> How important is it that he relies on you?
0: Oh, well, it's probably very important to him because uh, I don't because he think he would die. <laughs> he would die quite. And on two occasions, he's been frightened off, and and uh, you know, it's always loud noises that frighten them. And. Uh, he's sort of taken off and I, I've spent many, many anxious hours in the neighbourhood looking for him till I found him, once on a roof and once in a very tall tree and um, it's always been with great joy and relief that I've
1: carried him back home. So that's two objects that within these subjects that you've given us have given you source for worry and trauma, uh, potentially broken parka pen and a errant parrot. Well, I don't think it's unhealthy to have a a worry at the back
0: of the creative process. It's a bit of an engine, actually, for work. You know, you can't can't be complacent when you're working. It tends to, you know, send you to the TV or the bath or something. But um, if you you want to be working, you need the sense of something gnawing at you, a lack that needs to be filled, and um, anxiety certainly works in that way.
1: How are your reserves of hope? If they were ever full to begin with how are they now? Hope for your country ah, specifically? That's, I was
0: going to ask you mm. because it needs to be specific. I have to say my reserves of hope for South Africa are at a very low ebb. I mean I, I do tend towards the cynical
1: end of were the scale. Were they full when Mandela came to power when apartheid yes. the structure of it? Yes they, they were. were. I think naively full to
0: be honest. I mean I think all of us were full of a, uh, the sort of hope that could only come after a system like apartheid that that kept everybody in an airless bottled up state and where real politics were not at play it has to be said i mean there was no prospect that the national party was ever going to be dislodged that mandela would ever come out of prison there was a sense that time was frozen and then when time unfroze and the world opened up to us and you know vice versa there was the The giddy feeling that we could remake the future, that we could be the kind of country maybe that we always wanted to be. In retrospect, that seems almost quaint. Politics is a brutal game, and it's been especially brutal in South Africa. In the usual post-colonial way, I guess, where the heroes of yesterday are now the villains of today. I mean, one thing that can be said for where we are now is that we are no longer somewhere unreal. We're very much in the real world. But my feeling was that under COVID, a true emergency where money was set aside by the government to help us all get through, a large part of that money was plundered. And there was a sort of moral despair that set in, not just in my household, about the fact that even under these circumstances, you guys are going to keep stealing. And a lot of us, I think, really gave up the last shreds of hope at that point. I I don't know what will... Change that, it seems to be part of the South African DNA at the moment. I mean, again, it's not unique to us, but I, I do very much worry the economy is in a terrible state. We have very few resources left with which to turn that around. And a lot of prosperous people have left the country. I don't want to be one of those people. It's the place I'd like to call home for the rest of my life. So if I do have any hopes left, they are still pinned there, but realistically, I think the road
1: ahead is very tough and very long. You answered the next question I was going to answer really is why do you stay? Because uh, when I was there recently we went out on a shark tank <laughs> one of those shark cage things and we couldn't see because the sea was too bad at the end so we didn't go down but the woman who was there with us who was a marine biologist was uh, saying that her and her husband are going to leave they're going to Canada they can't deal with it anymore she was probably in her 30s and she just said we can't stay yeah. here anymore I mean that,
0: that feeling's quite widespread I think amongst those who can afford to leave. My sister's left with her family quite a few years ago. So have some of my friends. I'm very tied up with it. It's, it's the place that made me and I'm part of it as much as it's part of me. My identity's tied up with it and my hopes. I may reach the point where that's not going to be sufficient any longer. But South Africa is one of those places that even if you do leave it, you never leave it, if you know what I mean. Every South African I know who's moved away is continually looking over their shoulder, wondering what's happening, how it's happening, how it feels. I don't want to be one of those people. It seems like a semi-ghostly state of, of some kind. Um, exile is a terrible thing. So difficult and challenging though South Africa is, it feels like where I, I ought to be and um, it's certainly where my heart is. I don't know how to Answer that um, in any other way. And it's it's an answer I have to renew, I I guess, every day in some way.
1: Damon, spending time with you is every bit as rewarding as reading your fantastic book, The Promise. Thank you so much.
0: That's a very generous thing to say.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much. Be been nice to chat. And thank you, the listener, wherever you are, for listening too. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review and help get the word out. And finally, as ever... you want to find out more about this podcast, go to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaike. I shall see you soon.